Chapter Two of Sir Nigel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Clive Catterall. Sir Nigel by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Two How the Devil Came to Waverley. The day was the first of May, which was the festival of the blessed apostles Philip and James. The year was the one thousand three hundred and forty-ninth from man's salvation. From Tias to Sext, and then again from Sext to Nones, Abbot John of the House of Waverley had been seated in his study while he conducted the many high duties of his office. All around, for many a mile on every side, stretched the fertile and flourishing estate of which he was the master. In the centre lay the broad abbey buildings, with church and cloisters, hospitium, chapter-house and freighter-house, all buzzing with a busy life. Through the open window came the low hum of the voices of the brethren, as they walked in pious converse in the ambulatory below. From across the cloister there rolled the distant rise and fall of a Gregorian chant, where the precentor was hard at work upon the choir, while down in the chapter-house sounded the strident voice of Brother Peter, expounding the rule of St. Bernard to the novices. Abbot John rose to stretch his cramped limbs. He looked out at the greensward of the cloister, and at the graceful line of open Gothic arches which skirted a covered walk for the brethren within. Two and two, in their black and white garb, with slow step and heads inclined, they paced round and round. Several of the more studious had brought their illuminating work from the scriptorium, and sat in the warm sunshine with their little platters of pigments and packets of gold leaf before them, their shoulders rounded, and their faces sunk low over the white sheets of vellum. There, too, was the copper-worker, with his burin and graver. Learning and art were not traditions within the Cistercians, as with the parent order of the Benedictines, and yet the library of Waverley was well filled both with precious books and with pious students. But the true glory of the Cistercian lay in his outdoor work, and so ever and anon there passed through the cloister some sunburned monk, soiled mattock or shovel in hand, with his gown looped to his knee, fresh from the fields or the garden. The lush green water-meadows speckled with the heavy-fleeced sheep, the acres of corn-land reclaimed from heather and bracken, the vineyards of the southern slope of Crooksbury Hill, the rows of Hankley fish-ponds, the Frencham marshes, drained and sown with vegetables, the spacious pigeon-cots all circled the great abbey round with the visible labours of the order. The abbot's full and florid face shone with a quiet content as he looked out at his huge but well-ordered household. Like every head of a prosperous abbey, Abbot John, the fourth of the name, was a man of various accomplishments. Through his own chosen instruments he had to minister a great estate, and to keep order and decorum among a large body of men living a celibate life. He was a rigid disciplinarian towards all beneath him, a supple diplomatist to all above. He held high debate with neighbouring abbots and lords, 
with bishops, with papal legates, and even, on occasion, with the king's majesty himself. Many were the subjects with which he must be conversant. Questions of doctrine, questions of building, points of forestry, of agriculture, of drainage, of feudal law, all came to the abbot for settlement. He held the scales of justice in all the abbey Bolnia, which stretched over many a mile of Hampshire and of Surrey. To the monks his displeasure might mean fasting, exile to some sterner community, or even imprisonment in chains. Over the layman he could also hold any punishment save only corporeal death, instead of which he had in hand the far more dreadful weapon of spiritual excommunication. Such were the powers of the abbot, and it is no wonder that there were masterful lines in the ruddy features of Abbot John, or that the brethren, glancing up, should put on an even meeker carriage and more demure expression as they saw the watchful face in the window above them. A knock at the door of his studio recalled the abbot to his immediate duties, and he returned to his desk. Already he had spoken with his cellarer and prior, almoner, chaplain, and lector, but now, in the tall and gaunt monk who obeyed his summons to enter, he recognised the most important, and also the most importunate, of his agents, Brother Samuel the Sacrist, whose office, corresponding to that of the layman's bailiff, placed the material interests of the monastery and its dealings with the outer world entirely under his control, subject only to the check of the abbot. Brother Samuel was a gnarled and stringy old monk, whose stern and sharp-featured face reflected no light from above, but only that sordid workaday world towards which it was forever turned. A huge book of accounts was tucked under one of his arms, when a great bunch of keys hung from the other hand, a badge of his office, and also, on occasion of impatience, a weapon of offence, as many a scarred head among rustics and lay-brothers could testify. The abbot sighed wearily for he suffered much at the hands of his strenuous agent. "'Well, Brother Samuel, what is your will?' he asked. "'Holy Father, I have to report that I have sold the wool to Master Baldwin of Winchester at two shillings a bale more than it fetched last year, for the murrain among the sheep has raised the price. You have done well, Brother. I have also to tell you that I have distrained Watt the Warrener from his cottage, for his Christmas rent is still unpaid nor the hen-rents of last year. He has a wife and four children, brother. He was a good, easy man, the abbot, though liable to be overborne by his sterner subordinate. It is true, holy father, but if I should pass him, then how am I to ask the rent of the foresters of Putnam, or the hinds in the village? Such a thing spreads from house to house, and where, then, is the wealth of Waverley? What else, brother Samuel? There is the matter of the fish-ponds. The abbot's face brightened. It was a subject upon which he was an authority. If the rule of his order had robbed him of the softer joys of life, he had the keener zest for those which remained. How have the char prospered, brother? They have done well, holy father, but the carp have died in the abbot's pond. Carp prosper only upon a gravel bottom. They must be put in also in their due proportion. Three melters to one spawner, brother sacrist, and the spot must be free from wind, stony and sandy, an ell deep with willows and grass upon the banks. Mud for tench, brother, 
gravel for carp. The sacrist leaned forward with the face of one who bears tidings of woe. There are pike in the abbot's pond, said he. Pike? cried the abbot in horror. As well shut up a wolf in our sheepfold. How came a pike in the pond? There were no pike last year, and a pike does not fall with the rain nor rise in the springs. The pond must be drained, and we shall spend next Lent upon stockfish and have the brethren down with the great sickness ere Easter Sunday has come to absolve us from our abstinence. The pond shall be drained, holy father. I have already ordered it. Then we shall plant pot-herbs on the mud-bottom, and after we have gathered them in, return the fish and water once more from the lower pond, so that they may fatten among the rich stubble. Good, cried the abbot. I would have three fish-stews in every well-ordered house, one for dry herbs, one shallow for the fry and the yearlings, and one deep for the breeders and the table-fish. But still, I have not heard how you say the pike came in the abbot's pond. A spasm of anger passed over the fierce face of the sacrist, and his keys rattled as his bony hand clasped them more tightly. Young Nigel Loring, said he. He swore that he would do a scathe, and in this way he has done it. How know you this? Six weeks ago he was seen day by day fishing for pike at the great lake of Frencham. Twice at night he has been met with a bundle of straw under his arm on the Hankley Down. Well, I wot that the straw was wet, and that a live pike lay within it." The abbot shook his head. I have heard much of this youth's wild ways, but now indeed he has passed all bounds, if what you say be truth. It was bad enough when it was said that he slew the king's deer in Woolmer Chase, or broke the head of Hobbs the Chapman, so that he lay for seven days betwixt life and death in our infirmary, saved only by Brother Peter's skill in the pharmacies of herbs. But to put a pike in the abbot's pond! Why should he play such a devil's prank? Because he hates the house of Waverley, holy father, because he swears that we hold his father's land in which there is surely some truth. But, holy father, we hold no more than the law has allowed. True, brother, and yet, between ourselves, we may admit that the heavier purse may weigh down the scales of justice. When I have passed the old house, and have seen that aged woman, with her ruddled cheeks and her baleful eyes, look the curses she dare not speak, I have many a time wished that we had other neighbours. That we can soon bring about, Holy Father. Indeed, it is of it that I wish to speak to you. Surely it is not hard for us to drive them from the countryside. There are thirty years of claims of Eskewage unsettled. And there is Sergeant Wilkins, the lawyer of Guildford, whom I will warrant to draw up such arrears of dues and rents, and issues of hydage and foddercorn, that these folk, who are as beggarly as they are proud, will have to sell the roof-tree over them ere they can meet them. Within three days I will have them at our mercy. They are an ancient family, and of good repute. I would not treat them too harshly, brother. Bethink you of the pike in the carp-pond." The abbot hardened his heart at the thought. It was indeed a devil's deed. When we had but newly stocked it with char and with carp—well, well, the law is the law, and if you can use it to hurt, it is still lawful to do so. Have these claims been advanced? 
Deacon the bailiff, with his two varlets, went down to the hall yesternight on the matter of the escuage, and came screaming back with this young hothead raging at their heels. He is small and slight, yet he has the strength of many men in the hour of his wrath. The bailiff swears that he will go no more save with half a score of archers to uphold him. The abbot was red with anger at this new offence. I will teach him that the servants of Holy Church, even though we of the rule of St. Bernard be the lowliest and humblest of her children, can still defend their own against the forward and the violent. Go cite this man before the abbey court. Let him appear in the chapter-house after tierce to-morrow. But the wary sacrist shook his head. Nay, holy father, the times are not yet ripe. Give me three days, I pray you, that my case against him may be complete. Bear in mind that the father and the grandfather of this unruly squire were both famous men of their day, and the foremost knights in the king's own service, living in high honour and dying in their knightly duty. The Lady Ermintrude Loring was first lady to the king's mother. Roger Fitzalan of Farnham and Sir Hugh Walcott of Guildford Castle were each old comrades-in-arms of Nigel's father, and sibbed to him on the distaff side. Already there has been talk that we have dealt harshly with them. Therefore, my rede is that we be wise and wary, and wait until his cup be indeed full. The abbot had opened his mouth to reply, when the consultation was interrupted by a most unwanted buzz of excitement from among the monks in the cloister below. Questions and answers in excited voices sounded from one side of the ambulatory to the other. Sacrist and abbot were gazing at each other in amazement at such a breach of the discipline and decorum of their well-trained flock, when there came a swift step upon the stair, and a white-faced brother flung open the door and rushed into the room. "'Father Abbot!' he cried. "'Alas! Alas! Brother John is dead, and the holy sub-prior is dead, and the devil is loose in the five-vergate field!' End of chapter 2